0: Welcome back to the Freed Way Thinker. Uh, I am uh, back on my commute in Los Angeles, driving my uh, my long drive from home to work, and had a couple thoughts from some interactions that I had over this past week or weekend, uh, dealing with some atheist objections and skeptical objections to the Bible. One of, one of the main things that comes up when dealing with the Bible is the question of morality. And a lot of the times, and I've addressed these these issues before on the show, but uh, I wanted to address a couple specific passages that, that came up. But one of the things that comes up among atheists is this idea that if you can proof text a, Bi- a Bible verse, and if it, and if it's something that you think is morally abhorrent, then clearly... The Bible is wrong and God doesn't exist. There's a, there's a few problems with this. First, while, while I don't take the apologetical method of William Lane Craig uh, or, or those like him, he does make the logically accurate argument that even if you could show that there's an error in the Bible or something wrong in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily follow that God doesn't exist. Right. Now, I don't think that that argument holds. I don't think it's I don't think it's valid. Uh, I don't I, I haven't found anything that is wrong or or uh, or immoral or anything like that in the Bible. Typically, what I find, and we'll see in this in this episode, is uh, people who distort the Bible, read it out of the context, proof text, um, read uh, start an internal critique and switch to an external critique, where they're basically saying, hey. You know, it, it, if we presuppose my, my atheistic, naturalistic, anti-Bible worldview and moral system, and look, the Bible disagrees with that, then look how wrong the Bible is. It's usually the argument that it goes. But the argument, so far, as, as people like Craig make it, is is, is valid, right? I mean, it, it's, it, it could be the case uh, that if you could find something wrong with the Bible, that God still might exist. Right? It just it just might mean that the Bible itself is not inspired. Well, I, I think that that's a, a tough road to hoe, so to speak, and I think you'd have a lot of work trying to to make that argument. But you know, good good luck to you. You can you can try it, but it still wouldn't it still wouldn't have the result that you think it has. The second one, and I addressed this on the you know prior Freedway episode dealing with how to handle quotes and how to handle quotes accurately, and this commonly happens within the Bible. You can't just proof text a single sentence or verse or even a passage and not understand its context, its literary context within within uh, its immediate surroundings, within the surroundings of uh, the book that it's found in, within the surroundings of where it's found in, in the redemptive flow of the the narrative. For example, in the Old Testament, if you find—we're we're, going to talk here in a minute about Judges and, and the place in the the narrative, the Old Testament narrative that's being woven together— uh, and the role that it plays, uh, and the intertextuality uh, and intercontextuality with other passages in the Bible, right? Specifically, specifically for the passages we're talking about, Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so you can't you can't just make a critique that way. The other one is uh, more of a philosophical position, which is, and I and I somewhat touched on it already, which is, as an atheist, great moral indignation but you can't ground that moral indignation on your own worldview. You actually need my worldview in order to ground such objectivist, uh, real, moral indignation. Um, On your your worldview, nihilism is, is the necessary outworking. Now, a whole bunch of people have rolled their eyes and groans, but so far I haven't heard a good argument to the contrary. Um, you cannot simply just axiomatically say, "Well, you know, objective morality is true," just as an axiom, with and and so therefore it's compatible with naturalism. That's not how reasonable argument works. Sorry, you need to you need to actually give an ontic foundation and give an explanation for how it's possible on your worldview and on your worldview that just simply is not possible. So there there are some of those there are some of those problems. But here, I, I want to talk about the second one, about learning how to read a text and read a text. Well, you're just simply not going to be considered a reasonable, objective, rational thinker if you can't handle the texts that you're objecting to. And this just this isn't just true of the Bible. This is This is if I went and read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, and I just started taking random sentences and ripping them out of their context and making him uh, say the most obscene things. I mean, he already says obscene things. But just the most obscenely irrational things. But, the, but the, the way that I'm describing them is not actually how he intended them if you read them within the paragraph or the chapter or the book at large. right? We have to give, even if you think the person is... Let, let me just say I think I think Dawkins is one of the, is one of the most reasoned bankrupt new atheists that there is I don't hold him in high esteem but I'm going to give him the most charitable reading that I can I want to engage with his with his sayings as accurate to what he meant as possible and that's how you avoid a straw man All right so I'm not I'm not going to initially read his book. Just to find things that I disagree with, that motivated bias will lead me to misunderstand, misquote, misconstrue what he's saying. You need to first read to understand before you read to protest. That's that's a that's a key component to to critical reading and objective reading of text that you that you know you're going to disagree with a thesis. Not not to mention that that you know, just a little intellectual humility that you might be wrong and learn some things or grow and there might be some valid challenges, even if you go in thinking that you're going to disagree with the conclusion, you should still be open to the criticism, still be open to being challenged. Well, this happens all the time when atheists read the Bible. Not the the, the exhortation that I gave, but the, the handling things out of context. I mean, it's just... I mean, I've actually had atheists complain that Christians say they need to read things in context, which is basically complaining that we're we're saying that they need to be reasonable, <laughs> objective, critical thinkers, right? Um, so much for being the brights at that point. But when you're reading something critically, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give uh, two passages that we're gonna talk about. Uh, when you're reading something critically, you need to read it contextually again, literarily, historically, religiously, um, within, within its immediate context, its broader context, when you're dealing with the Bible, within the, the broader redemptive historical context, because while the Bible is an anthology of 66 books, it is a single unified tome that is meant to have a, a specific uh, narratival arc that goes through it. Um, so you need to be able to plot where you are. So a lot of times people will come and be like, "Oh, well, the Bible, you know, this is a terrible book to get your morality. Look at I think it's judges nineteen or judges twenty or somewhere right around there. look at look at the 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 brutal rape, gang rape and 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 chopping up of the of the concubine. What a terrible book the Bible is. Well, a couple problems. First, There's a weird type of assumption in that, that whatever the Bible describes, it prescribes. That is, unless the Bible is explicitly saying, do not commit murder, or do not, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of it. do not lie, do not steal, do not lie, whatever, whatever do nots. Unless it's explicitly saying do not, it must be affirming it. That simply is not the case. Um, the 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 moral presentation of the Bible is not as 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 superficially black and white as that. It's far more in line with the human condition. And it's it, it's it's I, I'm you know for those of you who disagree, I'm sorry, but it's just a it's a literary masterpiece. Even if you think that it's false and you disagree with it, it's just a literary masterpiece. And so the 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 narr- the narrator the author is not doing something so flaccid as that. So, for example, we come to the end of Judges. Can we read that passage on its own, out of context, and think, oh, well, the Bible doesn't condemn it, so therefore it must be approving it? Well, no. Let's look at its broader context within the book of Judges. What is the book of Judges? The book of Judges, at the end of the day, ultimately... Is a, a treatise in favor of the Davidic monarchy. I think there are a couple different views, but I think that that's the best one. It has this this pulsing theme that goes through it, which is that the people did uh, evil in the eyes of the Lord because they did whatever whatever was right in their own eyes, because they did not have a king. There's there there's a there's a moral condemnation in what the people did. And there's an irony in the statement because God was supposed to be their king. They, they, there's there's a condemnation in that statement, not only of saying they did terrible things because they did whatever was right in their own eyes, but there's an ironic condemnation where it says because they didn't have their own, you know, because they didn't have a king, and that's actually a double condemnation because it's saying, look, you actually did have a king, you had the best king, you wanted a terrible human king like the other nations. All right, so, even when you get a king, you're going to do terrible things. In fact, we, we see as we go through the, the history of kings in, in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, that most of the kings lead Israel into sin and apostasy. A human king does not help the problem. So, that, that's that's the first thing throughout that. Um, secondly, is that there's a narratival showing. Uh, that the people are doing evil in the sight of the Lord, even if it didn't just say it. There's, there's, the Judges works around all these little concentric circles. They're not really circles. They're actually downward spirals, like draining down the toilet bowl. Um, but they're these little concentric downward spirals. And, and one of those spirals is, is the, the sin, captivity, escape. Sin, captivity, escape, sin, captivity, escape. And by escape, you know, escape, deliverance, whatever it is. This downward spiral that happens. So the people fail to take the land because they sin. Um, they, they, they sin in a way by giving themselves over to the gods of the very people that they are supposed to dispossess of the land. And then they go into captivity to that very people. And then God raised, God hears, they repent and God hears their cry, raises up a deliverer, and then delivers them then they sin and go into captivity of the same people and then they repent and god raises up a deliverer and delivers them and then they sin and it just goes on and on throughout the book and as it goes you have these these little mini concentric circles that that the the deliverance lasts less and less time the deliverer the judge by judge, it doesn't mean actually like a, a guy with a black robe. It means a, 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 a someone who, who executes justice on the, the oppressors uh, of the people of Israel. The judge becomes less and less effective. So their, their deliverance lasts for less and less time. They also become less and less effective in delivering via the people. So you start out. Uh, and, and the judges uh, start by major military campaigns and victories. And then that narrows down. And then you get Gideon down to the 300. And then you get finally Samson delivering all by himself. And it's not even really a deliverance, it's kind of a, a singular event where he pulls down uh, the, the main pillar of the temple and crushes whatever Philistines are there. Right? But then there's no sense that that you know, entirely eradicates the Philistine threat to Israel. It becomes, you have these, you have these, all these little concentric downward spirals that go. And the whole point of this is that Israel is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. They keep doing what is right in their own eyes. And what is right in their own eyes is getting more and more wicked. It's getting, they're getting less and less likely to repent. They're getting more and more likely to commit apostasy faster, sooner within generations. You don't get 300 something years, you get 40 years. Right? It's it just it, it, it's this downward spiral as it goes. The whole book of Judges is a tragedy. And God tells them it's going to be a tragedy at the very uh very beginning of chapter two or very end of chapter one, um, where he basically says he's gonna with withhold his spirit from them when they sin. So after Samson, you then get these little epilogues. And one of them is the priest and the concubine. Right. This, is, this is at the bottom of the toilet bowl. This is as bad as it gets. Right? You have a wandering house priest. Problem number one, by the way, the Levites were not supposed to be private house priests wandering the countryside getting paid for absolution. They were to minister at the tabernacle and the people were to come to them with their sacrifices. Right, the fact that you have this wandering house priest who's a Levite is already problem number one. He has a concubine. Problem number two. Right, that, that, That's another issue. He then goes into uh, a town in uh, Benjamin, I believe. And the narrative should sound familiar to people. Because it's expressly parroting the Sodom narrative. From Genesis 19, where you have the outsiders come in, the, you have uh, one one person who who tells them to get out of the square because terrible things will happen to them. They they are to protect themselves and come in. And here at this point, uh, unlike before, where God delivers them, God God delivers uh, Lot and his family by by striking the men of Sodom with blindness. These people are so wicked; he has withdrawn his spirit. the The people went out. Uh, bust in, uh, gang-rape the concubine that he hands over like an absolute coward, and then he's so appalled by it, by by what's happened here, that he he, chops—whether or not she's fully dead or not—he chops her up and mails her out to all the tribes— this then elicits an even more sinful response where they basically say that, you know, the Israelites uh, uh, basically say, hey, we need to go in and slaughter this these people, slaughter the, uh, this tribe. And finally realize after they've killed a whole bunch of men, oh, well, we can't, we can't, you know, wipe out one of the 12 tribes. Let's, you know, steal their women and, you know, repopulate it. It's just bad on bad on bad on bad. And the whole section ends with, you got it. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord, for they did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. It's the, it's the icing on the wicked cake. The whole point of the narrative is that these people are as wicked as it can become. God's own people, Israel, have become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It is one long, condemning narrative. So for the atheist to come along and say, oh, well, look how terrible this passage is, you know, and you get your morality from this, yes. The Bible is absolutely, unequivocally condemning it. You just need to learn how to read. Yes, I do get my morality from that. I agree, That we should not do whatever is right in our own eyes. That we shouldn't uh, pay wandering house priests. That we shouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, wandering house priests that are charging people for absolution. I agree we shouldn't have concubines. I agree we shouldn't gang rape people. I agree we shouldn't chop them up and kill them. I agree we shouldn't go and wipe out a whole whole nation. I agree. (laughs) And so should you. That's actually the moral indignation that you're feeling about the passage because you misread it as a positive injunction. This is that description does not equal prescription. The description is actually part of the condemnation that the Bible is giving. So that's, that's one prime example. We're not reading in the context uh, of not only the immediate context, but the overall, the overall context of the book that it's found in, the overall context of its place within the redemptive historical arc of the entire Old Testament leads many people to mishandle the text. The other one is Psalm 137, and, and this is, this is a somewhat a famous psalm within uh, the, the new atheist community. And again, I'm, I'm going by memory. I'm driving. I don't want to read because, you know, I want to put out more content another time. This, this is the one that says, uh, blessed is or happy is the one who dashes your little one to the rocks. And the atheist comes along and say, ah, see, it's, say, it's saying it, there's going to be a blessing for those people who go and, and kill little children by slamming them against the rocks terrible. It's evil. Okay. What's happening in this passage? Well, I I did one episode already dealing with this. I'm going to go back. It's called Violence Worthy of Worship. In this passage, you're dealing with uh, Jews in exile having been completely routed, conquered, dismantled, uh, enslaved, and brought out of their country by the Babylonians. The Babylonians had a practice of cutting up children, cutting children out of the wombs of pregnant women, dashing them alive to the rocks in front of their parents. They were a brutal and barbarous people. Even by ancient Near Eastern standards. Um, this, this this uh, This was harsh for wartime, even at this period in history. The psalmist is living in the anguish of having seen all that. And is expressing real human emotion. The psalms are the the song book. There there are all kinds of things in the psalms, by the way, for careful readers, that are simply expressions of human emotions. They are not they're not saying you must feel this way all the time. They're not giving us moral injunctions. Especially as as it points forward to those uh, who are in Jesus Christ, who realize that 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 wrath, that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us, and that that price has been paid, and we are to we are to love our enemies. However, this is expressing real human emotion. This is also this is also within the biblical understanding that God will judge whole nations via the conquering effects of other nations. So uh, we have some examples of this. We have we have Israel because of their sin being told God's going to judge them by bringing in Babylon to conquer them. right? That, that was that was what God's way of judging them. So this statement, blessed, blessed is, is he who dashes your little ones to the on the rocks is a cry for justice. It's a cry for someone to come in and as utterly destroy and remove Babylon from the face of the earth as they have removed Israel from the face of the earth. It's 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 a plea for for God to come and judge Babylon for their wickedness, for their evilness, for their for their inhumane treatment. It's saying we 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 want you to be judged eye for an eye as you have have been have been wrathful on others. We we pray that someone will be as wrathful to you in judgment. It is not saying, Hey, vigilante, go out and grab some Babylonian children and just randomly you know, dash them to the rocks. It's not an endorsement of the practice. It's it's similar to saying, you know, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. If you are are that vicious of a conqueror, the only ones who will conquer you will be other nations that are just as vicious. And blessed is is the nation who comes and and disestablishes Babylon, who, who utterly wipes it off the face of the earth and removes it. Um, there, it, it's, a, it's a prayer for justice. It's what's called an imprecatory psalm. It is giving imprecation. It is giving curse against a cursed people, a cursed nation. Right, That's the point of it. It's not telling us that, that, it, that it's a good thing to go and kill babies. Okay? That 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 is one of the things that is helpful to understand. Not only the genre that we're in, we're in the poetic psalm genre, but we're also in an imprecatory psalm uh, that helps us understand the the emotional element as opposed to the ethical element of it. That it's that it's descriptive of human emotion, that it is not prescriptive of human action. Right, it helps us understand all those things, and it helps us to understand, it helps to understand the historical context of when it is written and where it is written. It is written, at, you know, when is after the exile, where it is in the exile in Babylon. Helps to understand those things. All right, so those are just a couple examples of the way that atheists mishandle texts by ignoring context. By the way, I mean, Christians do this too. I'll, I can't tell you how often Christians do that. I mean, the... the Jer- Jeremiah 29:11. You know, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans for a few, you know, a hope and a future. Well, uh <laughs> the plans that God has for them uh is is <laughs> that they've been exiled and that they've been judged for their sin and that there there will be a, only a remnant that comes through that. Right? That it's going to get better before it gets worse. That's not the kind of ooey gooey happy sappy sentiment that you get on a coffee cup when you see that type of thing. So Christians do this all the time too. I'm not you know, I'm not saying atheists only do this, but it's a it's a prime example in in objections to the Bible that they give, right? There's there's a gentleman in the unbelievable group right now that's doing a whole series of these God is good question mark, and he'll just slap down a Bible verse completely out of context without any reflection. Obviously have done, you know, no objective <laughs> no objective reading let alone objective research in the commentor- commentaries and historical you know anything which you know that's that's fine um, but if you if you know you have such a strong bias and you know you've done no reading whatsoever and you know the people who have done and have degrees in this and, and and have done all the research and stuff are just saying you're you're mishandling the text maybe have some intellectual humility and realize that your your dogmatic Statements might only be dogmatic ignorance. Just you know, have a little, have a little bit of intellectual humility. Just think about that. All right, well that that's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Drive safe and God bless.